And let us pray. <clears throat> Grant us, O Lord, <clears throat> to trust you with all our hearts. For as you always resist the proud who confide in their own strength, so you never forsake those who make their boast of your mercy. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. This, uh, this week, I had a uh, conversation where I heard what kind of God would make his son go to the cross and kill him in order to save people. So the, the, the whole uh, cross event, the centrality of the gospel, is unfathomable to the unregenerate mind. But it's not a new concern. It's been going on for some time. Phil Donahue, the former talk show host, wrote in a book. He said, If God the Father is so all-loving, why didn't he come down and go to Calvary? Then Jesus could have said, This is my Father in whom I am well pleased. And then he goes on to say, How could an all-knowing, all-loving God allow his son to be murdered on a cross in order that he might redeem my sin? Well, so this this, uh, complex thought has been going on a very long time. It's been, you know, since, since Christ died for us. And people stand outside and don't believe and then they doubt, and this is the way they express their doubt. In both cases, uh, of Phil's as well as my personal conversation, the underlying problem is a lack of understanding of the Holy Trinity. So, there, so, so there's, there's not an understanding of what the Holy Trinity is about. There is a low view or wrong view of sin, or sin is underestimated about its strength and the depth of our depravity and the seriousness of sin. And then the other problem is there's a lack of understanding of God's holiness. And so, with, with those things being darkened in the mind, it's easy to ask that very question. Kent Hughes says that this, is, this view is ancient blasphemy. So, been going on for a while, and he says it's blasphemy. The Father, you see, did not force the Son the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, to do something against his will. We know that. For they share the same will. And of course, it's not just the two, but it's the three, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit decided to redeem fallen man and had come up with a plan. It the concept that the church age is like a plan B, and what we tried to do with the chosen people didn't work, and so we now are switching plans, and we're going to do something different, is not uh, biblically accurate. This plan, as Ephesians would tell us, was set in eternity past in order to redeem fallen man. There was an agreement among the three who have always been in fellowship um, of how 
God himself would come to redeem fallen man. So God the Son willingly condescended, meaning he left heaven, left the glories of heaven, left the fellowship, the sweet fellowship, uh, constant, 100% all the time, continual fellowship, to leave that to come on earth. So God comes to earth in the form of man, in the form of Jesus Christ, to go to the cross to pay the sins, pay for our sin debt. Um, And this was an act of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's, and he came willingly. He came willingly. He, he, it was a suffering on his part to even just leave heaven, let alone the whole cross event. That too was suffering. And that we can relate to. The other part we don't relate to, um, even as we try, we can't really understand what he had experienced and what it took for him to leave that to come and dwell among us in the flesh. But he did that. But he didn't come to redeem his friends. He came to redeem his foes. He did not come while we were indifferent to him. No matter how much we like to think so. And we we, we really like to think so. Um, But the Bible says he came while we were yet sinners. The Bible says that he came while we were his enemies. That it's in that time, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, that Christ gave himself for us. If we don't understand this, this is the gospel. If we don't understand the truth of the gospel, there is no hope for us to love like he commands us to love. There is no, we, we are not able to love as he loved in and of ourselves. And so this becomes a challenging lesson as it's just simply read. But in order to put this new command of love into action, our only hope is through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who enables us to love in a supernatural way. So it's supernatural love is what we're going to be talking about today. And to begin with, we're going to look at an, an unnatural love. As, as he describes and commands us to love, in verse, beginning in verse 27. And he, said, he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To, the, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. So in this, in these few sentences, Jesus packs an awful lot of stuff. And so let's get our setting, uh, let's, let's be reminded of the setting of this. So he, Jesus has been, he just called out of the disciples he called his, what we also call disciples, but the twelve, who he calls apostles, because they'll be sent. And then he's been instructing them. And he's, so he's in the midst still of instructing them. And what he had just told, so that this comes, this is heavy. This, what do you do with this? But this comes on the heels of these bombshell things that he's, um, 
just given them, where he's pronouncing blessing on poverty and hunger and sorrow and rejection. And he's telling them that they're blessed in the midst of those things. And why are they blessed? They're blessed because they are his. They belong to him. Therefore, the kingdom belongs to them because they're heirs of the kingdom. But as they're followers of Christ, you're blessed as you experience these things because of me. Because you are my followers, you are blessed because of this. And so then he moves from that to move into this description of how we, they, we, are to love. And it's this unnatural love. Well, what kind of, what kind of love is this? What kind of love is he describing? Because everything he says goes against our natural inclinations. This is not what we do. That's why, that's why it stirs in us when we read that. And, and as, as we've read that now twice, just that first part, if it doesn't stir in you some things of, wow, uh, how do I do that? Then we need to read it slower. You need to spend more time in it. Because he's telling you to do something that you cannot do. He's telling you to do something you are not doing. It's in that concept of where people were claiming obedience, that <clears throat> how they, they are simply obedient and, and we don't sin now that we're in, in Christ. Read these few verses and tell me you're doing all that. It's, on, it's, it's impossible. The bar he sets is very high. He is describing loving people, enemies, those who are doing us wrong in ways that are not natural to us. They, they, they don't, it doesn't come from our own natural abilities. So, it's not the kind of innate affection that we might have. It's not that kind of description of love. It's not an Eros love where we hear of people falling in and out of arrows, you know, I fell in love with that person, which that's very difficult to even put into words, but it's uh, chock full of uh, emotions and feelings, that arrows love. And then when that arrows love passes, then often people have fallen out of love, fallen out of arrows, because those things have passed, and now they're, and, and they're yearning for that, and so they look for that elsewhere. We... we the world, our, in your neighborhoods, that's, a, that, that's where we live. Because we don't understand this ultimate love. And we'll get to it in just one second. Because the other, the other kind of description of love would be that brotherly love. Philia, uh, the Greek word, the Greek term. We're, and we're a bit of this, at a bit of, we are at a bit of disadvantage when it comes to our English language where we say love. And we're describing four Greek terms. The own, our own natural uh, ability to love that that comes from within inside of us that we can just love on our own. That love that's uh, the eros love, the philia love. And then there's this other love that it describes, which is agape love. And this is what he's talking about. So, it, and, if, and if we could handle the Greek, we, instead of saying love, we would say agape, just to, just to help our heads understand it's not love as we think of love, typically. 
This love, this agape love, is how he loved. And he's telling us to love like he has loved. That, uh, that brotherly love would be like how you love your friends. Well, okay, that's not, that's not what he's describing at all. So these are not friends. So what is it? Well, it's this agape love. And this is a love that is, it's, it's loved, given, without any dependence upon how it's received. So there's a, this agape love is a one-way love. It's a very intentional love. It's a deliberate love. It's a love by choice. And what he's describing, we must make a choice to love in these circumstances. In the upper room, at the end of Jesus' ministry, in a scene we're familiar with, Jesus demonstrated his love through service to his disciples. As he got up from the table and he washed their feet, and it was in that humility, in that humble service, as he, as he did that, that, that um, it's unfathomable that Jesus the leader would take on such a lowly role. And he demonstrated his love to them in that way. And then at the table, he took a morsel of food and dipped it in the bowl and gave it to Judas. And in that culture, that that act of dipping the morsel of food in a bowl and giving it to your friend would be uh, something you wouldn't do to a stranger, but it's a, a true expression of a kindred spirit, of a, of a true brotherly kind of love. So in this offering of this morsel to Judas, there's this offering of Christ himself as this is my friendship. Will you take it, Judas? And of course we know the story that Judas essentially then refused the friendship and then went ahead and betrayed him. But the kind of love which Jesus was extending to whom he knew was his enemy was very deliberate. Unnatural, I will say. It's an unnatural love, which, and, and this is what we are, how we are commanded to love those who are doing us wrong. That this unnatural love, where we can't do it in and of ourselves, we say, okay then, by the grace of God, I will choose to love this individual or those people. What, I think we need more of this agape love in our culture today. In the kind of world we're living in. We, we embrace all kinds of division. And I think that, um, I think we almost thrive on division. And, and, and if things seem too calm, it seems that there's something that's going to happen to just stir division up. And, and, and I think this happens, yes, in the church, but, I th- but it's certainly just in, on, in the world. And, and of course, with our technolo- technology uh, as it is today, where many people can share their voice, so, you know, we're in an uh, information age where we've never been exposed to so much uh, ready information, but also that information can be so inaccurate or so slanted, so biased, 
And it gives us opportunity because of that um, virtual anonymity where if I don't know you and I can just make my comments, I can be rude as can be. And I will say things perhaps in a tweet or in writing or uh, what have you that if we were standing face-to-face, person-to-person, I wouldn't say. And that cover helps me express myself even more vividly and creating and, and constantly adding to the division. So, I mean, if, and it's gotten to the point where if you disagree with me, you're simply despised as my enemy. So there's never the understanding, there's seldom the understanding that we're, 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 we're friends, we're brothers, we're, we're true brothers or true cousins. We're relatives who disagree, but we're walking hand in hand and we're just going to let some things, you know, just, we're just not even going to discuss these. You know, you know how your family gatherings are? Going around Christmas time and what have you, or Thanksgiving. And they're just things that you know this, with this particular member of the family, I'm not going to discuss this. Why? Well, you want to remain in peace. But that seems to have gone out the window, and we like the stirring up. So... This, uh, this lesson, I think, is good for us today because of the, it, it's making us think of how do we love our enemies. And, and truly, those who disagree with us, I would say, are not our enemies. It's just that when you start feeling like they're your enemy, or if it's a, by a particular group, and if it's really unrelated where there's no personal uh, connection, then it can be very well perceived as this thought, this side, this way of thinking, this view, they are our enemies. So we're challenged today to say, okay, what do we do with that and how do we love these people? How do we love them when we think that they are our enemies or when we're in the midst of disagreement? Well, for the Christian, we practice an unnatural love even with our deeds. It says, do good to those who hate you. We, we practice an unnatural love with unnatural words. He says, bless those who curse you. And we even pray unnatural prayers. Just pray for those who abuse you. Well, how is any of this possible? To love this way takes not unnatural love. I mean, it is an unnatural love, but it's beyond that. It's a supernatural love. It's the only hope we have is the love of Christ in us. If we implemented these directives 100% of the time, um, a a commentator, Leon Morris, says we would end up with two classes of people, a class of Christian pulpers who have nothing, and then a a class of uh, idlers and liars who have everything. If we, if we were to apply all this 100% of the time. But Jesus is calling, and, and, I, don't, and I, don't, I don't think that that's exactly what Jesus has in mind here. I think he has in mind us to live and love generously. To give ourselves away for his glory. And then in, where he's talking about stuff and, and the giving of uh, of to those who beg and giving of our stuff and not asking for it back if it's taken. Those things, I think, 
there's an expectation there that he's expecting us not to love our stuff so much that we don't want to be generous with it. We don't want to give it away because we love stuff. So there's a breaking free from our worldly possessions so that we can be generous. And then I think it's love that even guides us in how we give or 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 how we um to those who beg that verse 30 where it says give to everyone who begs from you so this, this morning as i'm getting ready for church i get a phone call then um uh, somebody needs some money and there was not a real description of why the money was needed really what the state of the situation was or who the person is or what the there was so much i don't know i i referred to food banks and that wasn't good and i started suggesting coming to church so that we could have a relationship and i would love to minister to you and in practical ways as well as spiritual ways and then the phone was hung up on me and so then i tried to call back twice it's just how I am. I mean, you're like, if you want my help, I'm here for you. But you're asking, you're asking my help in a way that you're demanding I meet your expectations. And there's nothing from me. So now, you know, so my thinking then since then is give to everyone who begs from you. And I, and I, and I, in my head, I was remembering that wrong which would put me in a better position. It was, you know, give to everyone who asks from you. That'd be a little different. Give to everyone who begs from you. We have continual conversations uh, citywide about the, um, what do we call them? Panhandlers. I was was on the beggars. The panhandlers down uh, near the hospital, if you ever come up 6th Street by the trussel, they're there. And they're like they're in force. Um, the city has hung signs that said "Don't give to panhandlers." They're, and they're also at some uh, Walmart exits, and they're, they're, they know where they should go. Uh, they, I, they've done their market research well, and then they implement it well. And there are people there that uh, I think they're probably doing very well as, at their game. And I think it's a game. And, and the, the signs that the city hung said "Don't give to these." And I would say to people, don't give to these. Um, I, don't, I don't think there's wisdom in giving in that situation. But, that, but it appears that Jesus has no qualifiers. Give to everyone who begs from you. So you know, next time you pass those people and you don't give them to them, you're going to like, do I believe Jim or Jesus? Here you go. Have $20. I, and, and, I, and I think it's in that context, in the setting, I think we just have to understand that there's, a, there's even more to the story and there's wisdom in how we give. And, you know, perhaps I'm saying that some of this, just to even help myself, but I think in holistic uh, ministry, the idea that we just throw money somewhere is not good. Uh, it, there, it's not good. So there's, a, there's the ability to minister to people in the midst of that. And, and ministry just doesn't happen without relationship. So, you know, if you stay at a distance and never come to a church, but you're willing to beg from the church, I think you ought to be willing to come in and, and see what the church has to offer. And eat a free meal that the church is offering, even. Uh, and perhaps, uh, 
I'm putting too many restrictions on there. But uh, we, want to, we, we want to be generous, but we also want to have wisdom because we don't want to end up with absolutely nothing to give to those who really do have needs and those who we do need to minister to and those who we are currently ministering to. So I think there's, this, I think there's a balance in the whole that we're not seeing quite yet. Um, and, and that key point, which comes from other commentators, is that understanding that um, if we're, if we're going to hold on to our stuff so tightly, if we're worried about our stuff, then um, that's probably not a good reason not to be generous. So we're, we're, and, then, and then it's the golden rule at the end that we're to treat others uh, as we wish to be treated. Well, that includes, and that's easy enough for us to uh, try to understand that and, and practice it in right circumstances. But we're supposed to treat others as we want to be treated, and that includes our family, that includes our friends, it also includes our enemies, those who um, don't love us, those who are doing harm to us. We are to love them. So in this next section, beginning in 32, it, we're going to see you, you do this and you get more of God. Let's, uh, in 32, it says, cause, and, and Jesus is explaining this. So he gives this command, and now he's explaining more and kind of unpacking what he just said. And kind of giving us some practical application. So in 32 it says, But if you love those who love you, what benefit is, is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So Jesus is flushing this out even more, unpacking it more. And the Christian is called to live differently than the world. And he's contrasting what the, how the world lives and how we are to live. The sinners love those who love them. Of course they do. It's a natural reciprocal love. The, they, they, will, um, they will lend to those if they think they're going to get it back. But if we're to do that, Jesus says, so what? What is that to you? What good is it if that's all you do? How kind are you? Um, the, the, the Christian movie, and I know uh, many people thought this movie was rather hokey, and you know, Christian movies have already a bad connotation because you said Christian movie. Um, but, but the movie Fireproof, um, which is by now old, but it was about reconciling a marriage, I thought it did an excellent job. And I'm a fan of Lifetime Movie Network, so I'm not like a great uh, person to critique movies. So you know, bad movies I'm just familiar with. So if the movie's not up to par, I don't know. what. Maybe it's not. But there was a lesson in it where there's a, the, the uh, main characters are having marital problems, and the dad of the husband gives the son advice of how to love his wife and how to do something nice for her. And it doesn't matter whether she likes it. doesn't matter how she receives it. 
It doesn't matter how she receives it. It could make her mad that you're doing these nice things, but you do them anyway. And you lay it out and you do them. And you're consistent. And you, it's consistent. It is consistent. It's day after day after day after day after day. There's an intentionality of doing something that's loving her. And in that sign, in that symbol, in that gift, in that act of kindness, whatever those things are, and it's, it doesn't say all this, but really what it's, what's happening is you are dying to yourself to put her concerns before yours. And so the, so the boy does this, and ultimately the, it's a happy movie. It's a Christian movie, so it's a happy movie. So there's reconciliation of the marriage in the end. And I don't know how hokey that is. It doesn't seem hokey at all to me because I think that's very real. And I think what I described earlier about that Eros love, and it's all feelings and emotions, I know it goes away. And we have to be very intentional. We, that's why we love with agape love. Even our spouses, we have to be intentional about loving. And then I think the two can meet. My heart still leaps when I go into a crowded room and I see Becky. Uh, we, we've only known each other for 38 years. But there has to be that intentionality, I think, to make that happen. Um, and there, because, and it hadn't always, there's not a hundred percent of the time it's always like that, and there's been lulls and such. But I think that concept of loving intentionally is is what we're talking about, and I think that movie illustrates that. It's that unmerited love, that unmerited grace, that unmerited favor that somebody's loving you when you are unlovable, and it's the it's. The, don't you know that it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? It was the kindness of this husband in that movie that the wife fi- figures out that she's being also selfish and self-centered and, and hateful. And it's in that goodness and that kindness and that grace that breaks that down and she is able to re- finally receive and accept love and forgiveness that is being offered. Kent Hughes tells this story um, of a missionary woman who is on a furlough, and she is finally looking for getting, to getting some rest. So she has a um, condo for a period of time, and she is thankful because her ministry in that mission field had been very hard, and she's looking forward to getting rest. And as she moves into this condo, she's there for a little bit, and she's enjoying peace and rest and relaxation, and then a family moves in right beside of her. And this family is loud. They're all obnoxious. There are kids. The kids urinate in the yard in broad daylight. The cursing never ceases. It always goes on. Her, her peace and her tranquility has now been interrupted. What do you do? She's growing hard-hearted toward her neighbors. She feels concerned about that. She's guilty about that. She needs to repent of that. She seeks the Lord on that. And, and it's as if the Lord's telling her, well, you're supposed to love those people. Well, how do you do that? Well, so she made a list of things that she could do for those people. And these things, this is not this is not rocket science. That stuff that was in that movie was not rocket science. The stuff that this woman did was not rocket science. She's she volunteered to watch the neighbor's children and babysit for free. She invited the mother over for coffee. She built relationship with those people. To one day the family moves, and now this missionary woman is in tears because these people whom she loves are moving. And you're like, what a beautiful picture. That in the loving of the enemy, her heart has changed. Because it's not a Christian movie, I don't have the real story to tell you how the, how the whole family came to Christ and, and how happy and what her influence on them meant. 
But that's, who are we responsible for? We're responsible for ourselves. And as she was obedient to the Lord, and she went to the Lord in prayer and found a way to go then beyond her own uh, space and serve them, her heart was changed. And it was turned from hardness and virtual hatred to love and softness. And she loved them and hated to see them go. I thought it was a beautiful story. And we'll find the same thing as we exercise love for those who do us harm, whether intentionally or unintentionally. She gave herself away. She chose to love those um, who she found challenging or she thought were her enemies. But then she was changed. So if, if we try to live out this moral lesson that Christ teaches us, without Christ, we'll turn into moralists and we will be very disappointed. Jesus is at the center of his moral teaching. Because we are his, because we have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, because he resides in us through the Spirit, we are partakers of that divine nature. We are not God, but we are partakers of the divine nature. And in that, he gives us the ability to humble ourselves and love. And we can even love our enemies. When we do good for our enemies, we become like Christ. When we pray for our enemies, we become like Christ. When we bless those who curse us, we become like Christ. That likeness is our reward. When he says, great is your reward. Where's my... 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend and expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. So as we exercise by the guidance of his Holy Spirit through submission to the Holy Spirit, we can love our enemies, and as we do, we become like Christ, and Christ is our reward. We are to offer our enemies the morsel of food that has been dipped, just as Jesus offered Judas. We cannot wait for the world to love us, because the Bible tells us that the world will hate us, because we love Jesus. If it hated him, it's going to hate us. That's what he says. Are there, there, are, are, there, are there people whom you hate and for some reason you have justified this hate? If so, you may check and see if Christ is really ruling your heart. Are you blessing those who curse you? If not, Christ is not ruling your heart. Are you praying for those who mistreat you? If so, you may be like Jesus. That is our hope. He is our reward. That He is our gain. As we go through these things where we are suffering, 
and we are able to then exercise this agape love, it's that exercise in dying to what we want, loving what he loves, and in that we get more of him and become more like him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.